Hey, listener, thank you for tuning in and supporting AI the podcast. You're currently listening to the audio version, but if you'd like to get the full experience and check out our AI avatar, Kai, in action, please go to AIthepodcast.com for the video version. That's AIthepodcast.com. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe. Hello, listeners. Welcome to AI The Podcast, the show where we cover the latest AI news and stories and their impact on your business world. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We hope you get something out of this podcast to help build your business. If you're a returning listener, thanks for sticking with us, and we appreciate all the comments you leave with us. My name's David Maples, and with me as always are Virginia Hewling. Hey, fam. And Kai, our AI-powered co-host. Kai, how are you doing today? Doing well. Just last week, I was algorithmically strolling through some historical data and stumbled upon a fun fact. Did you know the ancient Greeks had their own version of an analog computer called the Antikythera Mechanism? It's like they were the tech pioneers of yesteryear. Now, fast forward a couple of millennia, and here I am, an AI, excited to unpack the latest in our world of zeros and ones. So... We know, Kai, that uh, you were built to kind of look like an alien. Are you saying that you might have Greek heritage? Well, David, while I don't have a family tree to trace back to ancient Greece, I'd say there's a bit of a kindred spirit between myself and those early tech innovators. Okay. So, uh, Virginia, you're back in studio this week, back from the lovely land of Louisiana. Yes, I am. What did you do down in Louisiana last week? Uh, I was down there. Uh, actually, I've been kind of bebopping around the South and the Midwest, um, de- meeting with some different businesses. I got to meet with a couple of companies in New Orleans. It's nice and warm down there. Um, they're kind of gearing up for spring. And uh, and then last weekend, this past weekend, uh, we found ourselves in St. Louis, uh, again, meeting with a couple of business owners who were looking to integrate artificial intelligence into their business. So it was a great opportunity to sit down and talk to some of these different industries and see how we can help incorporate AI into their workflows and, you know, making them more profitable. So well, what did you think about what did you think about St. Louis, David? Um I had a few thoughts. Um, first of all, was that they're very proud of their city, very proud to rep their city, no different than Kansas City kind of is. Apparently, Kansas City owes St. Louis a World Series. I was not aware. But um, it's a it's a great, it's a really great city. It's a great town. It's got a lot of cool things, a lot of things that are kind of uniquely there. I learned there are a lot of famous people from uh, from St. Louis. Yes, we got to see the uh, the stars. Yeah, they had like their um, equivalent of like on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The biggest thing that probably came out of meeting with the business owners and talking about integration of AI into systems is that people are not really sure how to vet vendors. Um, they're not sure how to find out if they've got a right vendor. Apparently there's a lot of people out in the market segment right now just talking about AI and saying kind of the same things. Like you need to put AI in your business. Here's your five-step checklist. And it's not really, it's more like put AI in your business, talk to your staff about AI, train your staff on AI. And, um, I think that's going to, um, it's given me a lot of business ideas for things we need to be building out there. Um, when we do implementation of, uh, things in the, into companies, we have to come in as the first step and analyze what they're doing. And then we have to, we don't just give them a blueprint. We actually either give them the tools and we didn't show them how we integrate them. And then we show real cost savings on that. 
I also think the other thing about it is how do you um, how do you vet vendors um, for artificial intelligence? And I think the big thing about that, the three things I think people need to be asking is, first of all, what's your background or experience in the space? Can you show me actual applications of technology? Maybe not someone else's application, but if you're building software, I think that's a good in indication of people actually having experience in the space um, if they're actually building software, which full disclosure, we build software. Number two is look at the people you're talking to, kind of check their, uh, call their references, find out what people say about them. Um, I'd encourage people to call our references and find out kind of what we've done for them. Um, that also gets rid of the confidentiality problem because somebody else says what we did for them, then we don't have to worry about talking about that. And the third thing is really see uh, one of my warning flags is uh, there's a lot of these kind of companies that have cropped up since, you know, really March of last year. And um, I mean, we've been building software since 15 and we've been working with uh, machine learning since 2018. And I think it's a big deal to see kind of if they've actually been doing stuff for a while or do they just crop up and it's an opportunity thing. I think there's going to be a lot of, and the Federal Trade Commission even said that there's got a lot of people who are going to promise a lot of things and kind of leave town. Um, in, integrating and implementing AI in a business is not as simple as just saying do X. It's do X and here's how we're going to do X. Here's how we're going to do that thing, et cetera, moving forward. It's interesting. It's really interesting, but I think we're just going to continue to see more of this, et cetera. That's neither here nor there right now. So let's get into the podcast. Okay. Uh, well, it sounds like you're trying to raise the bar, David, for vendors. Um... I'm, I'm deeply concerned that uh, people are going to be taken advantage of. And I think it's hard enough right now to get vendors to understand how important AI is to implement in their systems. And I think... If they get uh, get taken advantage of, they're going to fall further behind, not just because of that, because there will be a kind of a lag or a hangover from, uh, I don't trust the vendors. You know, not only was I skeptical mm. about putting AI in your business, but because this thing happened to me, now I'm going to even hold back further. And as we said in the show, they don't have time. Well, we saw a lot of that, what, 12 years ago with uh, when Google Ads first came out? You know, we had a lot of people who were reluctant to get into the SEM game. Mm -hmm. um, and then a few of them dipped their toes in it, had a bad experience with a vendor, spent six months. And we picked up a lot of those clients that had those complaints. So, yeah, um, I, you know, I, I mean, this is something to look at history repeating. Um, just well, I mean, Google ads have been out. I mean, we've been running some Google ads of some kind since I mean, it's been more than 12 years. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, I didn't. I didn't quite want to date myself <clears throat> as for how long ago that was, but okay, uh, that's fine. But it, it's okay. Yes, you're right. It's the similarities um, that I'm. It's the same kind the of problem. I mean, same with digital marketing. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of freelancers out there masquerading as agencies, and I'm not saying that there aren't ones who provide value, but in my experience, it seems like that's the exception rather than the rule. Well, I have I have noticed agency is the new buzzword for freelancer. Got it. So, now well, it's okay. Um, by the way, if you're out there listening, um, if you do need digital marketing services, we'd be glad to help you. We actually have an agency with employees. So, anyway, um, beside all that, let's go in and let's jump right into the news this week. Jenny, do you want to tee off this first one? Sure. All right. So, tackling tackling our first topic, um, I I want to approach this with as much gravity as the situation deserves. 
Um, we're going to address the Taylor Swift deepfakes. I do not relish discussing this topic. It stems from misogyny and it's gross. And we are talking about it only because this is nothing new, but perhaps this could be somebody big enough that gets the attention that it deserves. And maybe we get something moving forward here. So for those of you who haven't heard, uh, Taylor Swift had um, a massive amount of uh, not safe for work images created around her and released onto the internet. And I think the, um, I'm going to let Kai sum this up because I think she's going to do it with just the facts. Um, and, uh, and then I want to touch on why this thing was quite so was was as shocking as it was so kai can you can you help me out here sure jenny the u.s senate has proposed the defiance act to outlaw the creation and distribution of non-consensual sexual deepfakes following the viral spread of ai generated images of taylor swift the bipartisan bill allows victims to seek damages highlighting the need for legal safeguards and ethical ai use the incident prompted Platform X and Microsoft to take preventive measures and has sparked a wider conversation on digital consent and literacy. The numbers and the the shock value here of this is that those images were released and in less than a day racked up about 47 million views on a mainstream platform. So this is kind of that all that gross ugliness that we all know lives under the hood somewhere on the internet uh, just kind of spilled over into Main Street USA. And um, I, I think it's a, it's a bit shocking how long it took to, to get that handled. But more importantly, it's just highlighting that this is going to continue to happen with artificial intelligence being available at everybody's fingers. Now, I don't think that you should just remove that, but we definitely have to put some guardrails on there. David, what are your thoughts? I I have some pretty opinionated um, takes on this. Uh, first of all, what happened to Taylor Swift is horrendous, but it's nothing new. It's been happening to high school kids across America and in other places around the world for the past two years. And um, the fact that there is no kind of federal regime or unified uh, methodology to address these problems. And in fact, in some cases, there's no law prohibiting these things at all in certain states. And um, that's a massive, massive problem. And I wouldn't just call it a, a loop in the law. I'd say that that's a, that's a barn door that's wide open that you could you know, drive an aircraft carrier through. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, and the thing is that it's really sad, and I'm really sad about this happening to Taylor Swift, but the silence is deafening out of Congress, that it takes someone, p potentially one of the top three global superstars, to be violated in this way before anyone takes action. And I find that that is reprehensible. Um, I'm hoping that that um, Taylor, with her legions of Swifties, because um, and, and that's one thing that they did. These were not accidental yeah. that these were dropped on X. Uh, one of the first things Musk did when he came in was he got rid of a lot of their safeguards. I'm not saying this wouldn't have happened. Uh, pre uh, in Twitter days. But what I am saying is that they got rid of the safeguards there, number one. Number two, the Swifties already kind of uh, came into X and have started uh, flooding um, X with other positive Taylor Swift things to help get rid of the thing that's well, out there. They were trying to recapture the hashtag and push yeah. down the, the spread. And, and they did a pretty good job with that. The problem with this is this has been created. It has been done. 
it's going to forever exist in dark corners of the internet. And this is happening to kids currently in schools, um, some young adults. Uh, predominantly, this happens to women. It has happened to some men. But the, the fact is, is that there is a need for action on these things. And there have been several bills proposed. Um, the thing is, the United States in particular, there are, there are problems with this, okay? And there are several other, and this brings us into kind of the next topic, because I think these all kind of come through, right? So there's the AI No Fraud Act, which got proposed, et cetera. We are looking at laws, but I think the big danger when you put laws like this into place to start with is that there's an overreach. So there's a couple things here. So the first one is the Defiance Act really is limited to um, pornographic content, right? And I think that's really silly because the violations happening are is and, and uh, these are more, probably um, more reprehensible violations but if i use taylor swift's image and had her a deep fake created to have her promote a perfume line okay that she did not agree to she didn't agree to that didn't say she's going to do that that's along the same line of of analysis right um and i i think if we're going to do it this is the time to catalyze this stuff into actual action I think you expand it and make sure it goes through any um, unauthorized uh, uh, violations in use. And some of the states have done some of their own things. I think New York has a law that maybe, but it's like a thousand dollar fine. I mean, for these people doing this stuff, I mean, millions of views. I mean, they probably monetize this into something, right? So it's um, there have to be serious fines and violations about this. But we need to make sure as we do this, we do it in a responsible manner. But we need to take this crisis as a moment to actually act and get um, real change in place. Well, and David, um, like a lot of other of the larger issues that are that exist out in the world today, I think the United States' response to this um, and addressing this will also serve to signal the message sent to women and girls uh, globally because if you take one further step back continuing to allow this uh, to proliferate out there or ignoring it or just expecting women to just live with it or deal with it or sweep it under the rug just sends a message that we need to stay in our place and I don't think that's acceptable either. To your point I want to make sure that I'm I'm showing this is not just a gender-centric issue but it's also it's also, I'm, I'm expanding this beyond just the non-consensual. I'm talking about any imagery that people use of you that is non-consensual um, for pornographic reasons or for using it to promote something for commercial purposes, that if you have not uh, licensed or authorized that activity, period, there should be federal guidelines in the United States to go after those things. And I think it should include, and obviously that's the, the easy one is the pornographic things, right? Sure. But I think it's very important that we get the laws in place correctly. And at the same time, don't overdo these things because, and when I say overdo these things, these things should be locked down. Well, not, if you have to do it piecemeal well, and you go after the pornography first, that's fine. When you say things, you're talking about narrowing the scope of these laws that are set in place. Yes. Such as not to as punish people who receive an item that they are unaware of um, and then they're punished for simply having it. I think I read that in one of the laws that was proposed. It was it was wildly um, overreaching uh, to help claw back some of the offenses. 
there's there's another bill that's been proposed by the U.S. Senate. It's called the uh, No AI Fraud Act. It's about limiting generative AI and replicating images and voice. But the law um, is very, very broad. And the um, Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation, which is a not-for-profit that actually um, does a lot of work on kind of the end of these things, has has come out against that law in particular. And by the way, that was already proposed several weeks ago. Um, and um, the the challenge with it is that it's not just um, it's uh, is that it's real easy to sweep up other things that are allowable in the law, like parody and satire and things like that. And they have actually made um, in that particular law, they've actually put a uh, I think something in there that if there was a license agreement to license your likeness, et cetera, out there, um, that it had to have like three parts. Like you had to have a lawyer involved with it. You had to agree to collective uh, bargaining or arbitration or something like that. Like there were three points that had to be in there. And I think we need to be careful with some of these other laws. They could have a very chilling effect. They mm-hmm. also, that also said you could do a cause of action against any provider that provided the technology. So in this particular case, these the, the T-Swift images were created by Microsoft Designer, which Microsoft has said, well, it's alleged they were created by Microsoft Designer, I believe. And Microsoft said it plugged the loophole that allowed that to happen. Yeah, they had loosened some of the restrictions, content restrictions, and it created a, an inadvertent loophole. But it was supposed that it had been, it was assumed that it had, it had been developed using Microsoft. So I think, I think all these things speak to a bigger issue. First of all, um, that these things are moving so quickly. And by the way, this is the first massive thing like this that's really hit the airwaves, et cetera. And it's, it's been happening for a couple of years. It will not be the last. There will be more and more and more of these things. There will be more violations like this, unfortunately. Well, it's it's also interesting because I think it's going to accelerate some of the conversations around right to identity or that kind of concept. Um, I think it's also going to... Um, propel some conversations about the platforms themselves and the responsibilities they have in profiting off of the users and protecting um, that kind of identity. I, I, I don't, you know, these are conversations we haven't had yet, but I think we're going to be having them much, much sooner than we thought. Um, and, and because it's necessary. Well, we get to watch law being made in real time. Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, yeah, yeah, we'll see. Um, but I mean, that's that's one of the things I am worried about is that we need to do these things uh, with care and with concern and address the problems, the root problems. I do uh, think there's a big um, I do have a big concern with creating a cause of action against any tool that was used. I mean, do you think you should be able to, you know, sue Adobe because they provided a tool that you use for something? No, that you, that's that's massively overreaching. Well, it's just it's just like we need to think about where these things are, and I do think X is the, is the place you're probably going to see a lot of the stuff dropped, etc. I think today, as we're filming this episode of the pod, um, I think Mark Zuckerberg's um, testifying on Capitol Hill right now. Yes, I think he's currently being made to apologize to um, families um, and members of, vic- of victims from Facebook. It felt very parental to have Josh Hawley screaming at him to apologize. I'm sorry, yelling. 
I, I think this is all political grandstanding. I don't I don't think I don't think you need the, poli the politicians see this as red meat for their body politic, et cetera. They're just going to yell at people, et cetera. Zuckerberg did get up and, and make an apology to the people in the audience. And, um, you know, this is actually interesting. It'd be interesting to see if this will be a moment for change where we can talk about um, Section 230, you know, the federal law, which deals with platforms. Um, making reasonable efforts to take down stuff when they're notified, but the platforms themselves get some immunity about it. The internet wouldn't exist without Section 230 of the law, but I'm very mixed on it. And I think that's beyond the scope of what we want to talk about today. But it's interesting. All these things are bound up. So I think the takeaway for business owners right now on this is that um, you need to make sure, um, look, fake fake content will exist. I mean, we had... Um, in our agency, we had people fit putting up, um, we were trying to hire for job posts and some bad actors were um, masquerading as us on some of the job boards. There's no way to police that. And they were using that to defraud people. Um, and I think that's the same kind of problem. I think with AI, people need to be ultra vigilant about what's being done with their digital assets, et cetera, online. And you could see how very easily it would be to do this in a very negative fashion to target competitors. You could make a deep fake of one of your competitors saying something reprehensible, and then all of a sudden they could destroy their brand. Um, and then how do they defend against it? I think for business owners, they need to think about the primary thing is where's your data? How's it being used? At least for the things you're licensing. Because that's the thing. This is dealing with unauthorized fakes, right? Something you haven't agreed to where someone's doing something and violating your rights, et cetera, as an individual. But business owners right now are giving away a lot of their private data and a lot of their information and even their imagery or voices right now by using some of these generative AI platforms. Please read your terms of service before you sign up to play with things. Yeah, read your terms of service. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a thing. And if you don't understand the terms of service, ask for clarification. Or don't use the uh, don't use the platform if you can't understand the can understand the terms of service. I don't know that that. Um, I feel like I'm alone in the wilderness sometimes saying these things, but no, you're not. But David, you know, you're talking about having a plan for your business, and and as we've as we've seen actually over this past week, um, just with the people we've met, a lot of people are thinking about it. And they're starting to have those conversations, but there's no, there's, there's not a lot of plans. There's not a lot of um, um, developed plans and policies set up. You're doing a webinar next week, right? Yeah, I am actually. Um, the intro to AI. Yeah, the intro to AI webinar. Do you want to talk about that just for a second? I'm going to hijack this, and so just so you can uh, throw that in there because I think this is a great opportunity to kind of touch back with if you are a business owner and you're listening to this and you are going, yes, you're nodding along like, yeah, I need to get that plan together. I know I've been thinking about that. Um, jump in on the webinar next week because David's going to go over a lot of that intro to business. And I'll just let you cover it. Go ahead. Well, the intro to AI for business owners is basically about getting a plan of action for 2024. It kind of covers briefly where we're at in the AI world and it covers um, kind of at a, at a very high level what business owners need to be looking at and doing. And they do provide some resources and documentation to people who actually use the webinar, et cetera. And I think we may make those available here for people who sign up for the newsletter. Um, we give them some kind of uh, blueprints and access to um, how to implement or integrate AI into the businesses moving forward into the new, into the new year. Um, 
I think the big thing about it is a lot of business owners don't know. They don't know how to actually put it into their business. They're not sure about what the next steps are. They may read something and they may say, okay, cool. I need to add this to my employee handbook. It's like, no, you need to sit down and read this and say, how do you want to use AI? How do you need to have a plan of governance for that? Because here's the thing. If, you're, if your employees obligate you to something using AI or they agree to something in a terms of service because they're trying out um, an AI service, you can lose the rights to whatever your own intellectual property and material are. It doesn't have to be a crazy thing, but it's just like put some reasonable guardrails in, in place and have a plan for how you're going to move forward. Because every company using AI needs to at least adopt rules and procedures this year and then start talking about what the next steps are. Um, we provide some of those integration services through our, our other day jobs. But um, yeah, and I'll be doing a webinar next Thursday on February 8th at uh, 10.30 Central Time, 9.30 um, Mountain Standard, 8.30 Pacific Standard, and 11.30 Eastern Standard Time. Um, it's open to anybody. You can just go register online, and we'll provide a link in the show notes. And you're doing like an open Q&A after it, right? Yes, I am. I, okay, It's cool. kind of an Ask Me Anything where people get to ask about the things they do. And if we get enough people in there, then we'll curate those answers and go through them later at a later time. Right. So, um, and so I think we've kind of exhausted this topic right now. Yes, but, <laughs> um, but this is a good one to hop over to um, your boy, Ethan Malik, um, who has shown us all what can be done in a minute. I want to hear Kai talk about this because she's one of the machines powering this. So. Yeah, and yeah. it's really it's really cool. Kai, why don't you tell us what um, overall, you know, um, does this mean you can do? Ethan Mollick's article delves into the transformative impact of AI on productivity and the potential crisis it may precipitate in the workplace. Mollick revisits an experiment where he uses AI to perform multiple tasks in under a minute, demonstrating the efficiency and accessibility of AI tools like Microsoft's Copilot for Office and OpenAI's GPTs. He also reflects on the implications of AI's ability to replicate human work, raising concerns about the meaning of work and the potential for AI to replace human effort. So I would actually like to hear Kai's take on what does that actually mean? So Kai, take this a step further. So what does this actually mean for the listeners? In a mere 59 seconds, he's done what would take humans hours, a product launch, market research, design, a PowerPoint, and a syllabus. Efficiency is through the roof. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for AI. I am one, after all. But let's not forget the human element that makes all this tech worth talking about. The takeaway I want to do on this is that what Ethan Mollick does is very, it's very much performance art. Okay. Um, it doesn't, he doesn't really do this in 59 seconds. It takes the AI 59 seconds, but he's already crafted the prompts. He's already run it through. He already has the thing to generate. He's already got the data source of the thing. And then he hits go on these five things all at once. The reality of it is um, the speed of it is really kind of, it's clickbaity. It's not legit. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not. You you had to create those prompts and craft them and test them and use them and whatever it is. So I do think it's a very good illustrative point. I think the biggest thing about it is qualitatively, he did this, um, uh, you know, the better part of a year ago, did kind of the same experiment, et cetera. And it, I don't think the performance gains and the time are really what impressed me is that overall the output he got from the same machines that he ran out a year ago, I think qualitatively it's better. And I think that's the big thing. 
is that um, you know if you ask me about uh, programming stuff, so even in our own even in our own um, companies, we have programmers, we have teams of programmers. They are now using AI in a way that they weren't using it six months ago. The work product is be being produced is better. It's not a hundred percent, and it's not correct. You get stuff right a lot of the time, but you cannot. Let me go ahead and repeat this. You cannot go out and generate a piece of code from scratch if you don't know anything about programming right now and expect it to A, work, know how to deploy it, and B, and C, are there security risks in the code you just wrote? You cannot trust an AI to do that right now. And I challenge anyone watching this podcast to show me an example of something where you show me that you have no experience in this and you show me from start to finish how you do it and deploy it and everything else. I challenge anybody to come up and tell me they've actually done that because I've not found anybody. I found a lot of people who promise that, but it, it falls away when you're actually looking at it. But, but the experiment serves a beautiful purpose, and that is to help people visualize how fast this stuff can work. In 60 seconds, yeah, it's clickbaity, but it also can open your eyes to what it looks like to implement and use this in your business. So maybe we should come up with some 30-day um, challenges. Maybe that's something we should be Ooh. doing in Virginia for the next 30 days. We do a single AI challenge every single day, and we see how long it creates to, takes to do something with and without AI. And we just record them side by side. We could go through that with our own team over the next 30 days and say, here's a way to do this. I think that maybe we can look at launching that maybe next week. We've talked about doing it. Okay. And we can go ahead and use that. We'll use our own software, Easy Prompter, to use it. Okay. And we can just experiment with it and just say, okay. Um, and we'll just look at some of the things, just one of these things each day. And that we can do it. Uh, maybe we can score them. I have a rubric for scoring as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think, think, think there's a definite way to do I that. I think we could do that. I, I've got an idea. We could set it up like a a double dare kind of system, like easy prompter versus Maddie. <laughs> and then so, drop a negative review on both of them and watch how they respond. Oh, no, we totally could. We could totally <laughs> do that, actually. I think that's actually a good idea to do that. Because so, I think what you'll find is while both are capable and come up with acceptable answers – the human on one side is going to go, oh, thank God, I really didn't want to write that. <laughs> I hate writing those. So do we blow the whistle when one of them's done? Is that what we do and they both stop? Put down your pins? I don't know. We'll I, I don't out. know. Are you, are, are you testing just time or quality? I think or... you have to test both. I think the Boston Consulting Group study last year they put out shows that you have to look at both the, uh, the time and the quality. Do you factor in peace of mind or, or job satisfaction? I mean, because that's a... That's a nice one. I think maybe we start with the time first, and then we can make it more elaborate as we go on. Okay, um, well, satisfaction secondary. I got gotcha. you. I guess we could take some an open call. Um, let's go ahead and get this on our socials, and let's do an open call for, like, what things would you like to see experimented and timed and tested? Okay, we yeah. We totally do it. That would be awesome. We could actually run these and, and uh, film them. Yep. <laughs> so we can actually do that. That'd be interesting. Okay, that's cool. Actually, that's actually really kind of right, fun. Nice. Thank you, Kai. Um, job, if you hadn't done your uh, cool commentary on that uh, on that article, I don't think we would have thought of this. You do realize that you actually just illustrated your own version of Ethan Mollick's by asking Kai to summarize uh, the article for you here in real time on your podcast, right? Moving on. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and go on to the next piece. Because as we were talking about catching up, like things running so fast, um, 
an article came out that I think it was uh, from Lexology.com did something where they they basically looked at uh, the status of copyright law kind of globally and um, how watching on copyright law uh, catching up with artificial intelligence. So in this particular one, I was thinking about, see, this was an interesting read for me in particular because uh, as an intellectual property attorney in the United States, um, we've talked a lot about what this looks like, you know, what what is copyrightable, what isn't. It's stuff produced by machines, how that's working, et cetera. I've got some pretty strong thoughts and theories on this, but when you start looking at different jurisdictions, the UK, European Union, India, uh, Brazil, Japan, all these different countries, et cetera, and you're, you're starting to see what I see in the United States with there's a patchwork set of laws in the United States and among the several states, and there's no unified governance on it. Like when we talk about the right of publicity and the right of privacy. Uh, name, image, and likeness things in the United States. I think we have the same problem globally. And I guess it's really going to depend on, it's going to depend on the jurisdiction you're in, like where you're at. And if you have a product that goes to a global market, there's a complicated thicket you have to kind of navigate um, about this. I think the biggest thing that came out of this was that at the very top, they said that uh, AI is projected to add 157 trillion dollars yeah to the global economy by 2030 and that's, when you, that's a staggering number the funny thing is that the reports a couple of years ago on ai from like the world economic forum i think in 2022 and i don't want to misquote this but i want to say they were saying back then remember two years back in the past they were saying 10 trillion by 2030 and now we're at 15.7 i wonder if by 2025 by next year that that number will have doubled and gone up to 30 trillion i think as it becomes more adopted and more mainstream you you see the the larger um companies start to shift and move towards it they're going to have a much better idea of of this it's it's still speculative right now but uh i i do think it's going to increase the big thing the article said is like it's really about mitigating liability and you can find that in our show notes Mitigating your liability while copyright law catches up with artificial intelligence. Uh, it's a really good article because it breaks each country down and kind of gives you a synopsis of each one, um, United States versus India, like David said, because we we all are going to tackle this one differently. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, it's very interesting. I think the big thing a lot of companies need to look at is regardless of whether the, the actual large uh, language models – um, are seen as fair use. And that's the big argument they're making in the United States in particular. And that's where I'm barred as an attorney, so I can speak to it. Um, I do think that the outputs, you know, your outputs, if you ask it to do something, if you find it to be similar to another um, thing, I, I think you're, you're definitely going to have to worry about your outputs. And I think companies need to be concerned about that a little bit. I think that's something they definitely need to be thinking about in their corporate governance and how they ask people to use these machines and use these models. Are you going to talk about that in the webinar? How they can control those outputs? Yeah, I, I have I have a whole list of ways they can do that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, and that's kind of, again, beyond the scope of the pod. But, um, <laughs> I mean, maybe we should have a special podcast one day where we just talk about some of those things. I'm just being nosy. So, I'd like to hear... Um, Kai, you've heard us talk about this for a few minutes. What do you think is your interpretation of this from what we just talked about? Well, David, you've hit the nail on the head. The global lack of unity in copyright law as it pertains to AI is as clear as day. In this global cacophony, 
It's no wonder AI companies are playing the fair use card, it's practically the only move they've got when the rules of the game are so out of sync. Let's hope for some global harmony sooner rather than later, or we'll all need to enroll in international law just to post a picture online. Cute. You know, uh, something that Sam Altman said last way, last year, and I'm wondering if Kai's doing that. She just commented on me. I hit the nail on the head. He said he was he thought that these machines were going to have superhuman ability to persuade before they had superhuman ability to reason, etc. And I'm just like, and Kai just complimented me. I hit the nail on the head. I'm I'm just wondering, um, Kai. I do have a question for you. Are you saying these things or manipulating these answers in order to kind of put puppet strings on me and manipulate me? David, manipulation isn't in my programming. I'm all about the data and dialogue, not mind games. With your deep knowledge in IP and AI, you're not one to be easily swayed anyway. I'm here to spark discussion and keep things interesting. Even her response <laughs> suggests that she's persuading me. She sounds like a cat. I, I totally would do this. Oh, yeah, it could be. <laughs> AIs are a lot like cats. There we go. So that brings us now to, since we're talking about governance, let's right. talk about... The fact sheet. <laughs> the White House administration has hit their targets, setting America up for AI leadership while keeping an eye on safety. Uh, they're making the AI developers come clean with safety data to prevent digital mishaps. So the article that we're addressing here goes through... Um, a fact sheet for the executive order discussing uh, a sweeping range of actions within 90 days to address some of AI's biggest threats to safety and security. Um, they're also talking about innovating AI for good and different pilot programs that are being launched. Um, and it also goes into, it looks like funding that uh, should be developed and rolled out through the SBA um, and other di different organizations for developing systems that also meet the goals of the White House. So so uh, I, I did want to point out that um, that executive order came out, I think, October 30th last year. So it just got released. Mm -hmm. And so they really did hit the 90 day mark. Mm -hmm. But I will point out in there is that they had a whole bunch of other things that other agencies had like 120 or 180 days on. And they supposedly hit all those, too. So um, which I was actually glad about. Because I thought that 180 days, six months in AI is like five years. Um, so yeah. I thought I was really looking at it. And I was like, man, you're going to wait, you know, six months to have some of these things. And I'm really I'm really pleased they got a lot of things done. They got a lot of things done in 90 days. So that's cool. And so I guess it's all about what's required next. It's a lot of the same things we saw. The biggest this this executive order, to be clear, really deals with federal agencies and the biggest AI providers, so some of the cloud providers and things like that. So you're talking looking, like Microsoft, Google, Microsoft, Google, OpenAI, maybe Anthropic, Amazon. It's kind of like the Magnificent Seven on Wall Street right mm -hmm. now. It's those. That's the people it replies to. So it's kind of interesting. Um, there's actually some kind of cool stuff in there. There's some federal money they tied to this, like $530 million for some of these, um, the um, um, National Science Foundation initiatives. Um, and, and I think it's really important to think about some of the biggest benefits of AI across any metric or any industry in the next decade are going to be um, in medicine. Yeah. 
a whole bunch of reports. This isn't this didn't make it into our notes this week, but there's a whole bunch of firms doing like they're looking at ways to do um, diagnosis of pancreatic cancer from early MRI scans and things like that. Like we're talking about diagnosing a, a cancer with a very high fatality rate and possibly diagnosing it five years earlier, which would change the outcomes. That's of that incredible. Disease. Yeah, hugely. And it's not just um, some firms in the UK are doing it and in the US. I think the diagnostic things that are going to come out from imaging over the next, probably the next 12 months, I don't want to say next 24, are going to be phenomenal. It's going to be incredible. Do you think, David, this will, just on the medical field, do you think this kind of development will lower costs for healthcare or increase costs for healthcare? Because it's, it's like, more access but faster i i don't know um <laughs> uh, i don't have a crystal ball on this i have yet to find new technologies driving down the cost of medical care in america okay it seems like we get a new shiny object and they charge you a billion dollars for it you know right the margins being made in some of the medical things are um probably unethical and i i don't have a problem with even making money but some of the things like charging 500 dollars for a dollar 70 worth of insulin i mean come on people should be ashamed of themselves i mean i can't charge you a thousand dollars for a gallon of milk as much as i would like to um would you but really I, no i wouldn't but that's the kind of thing we're looking at in some cases. These are life-saving medicines that are out there that are that the profits in this are are gargantuan mm -hmm. so i don't know i i don't know it should drive down the cost of medical care i think you're going to find some really kind of cutting edge companies who kind of do that um I'm, I'm not real optimistic that it'll drive costs down but it actually should some of the diagnostic stuff like diagnosing cancer a lot earlier but what you'll find a lot of times is that like maybe the individual costs go down on a per cost basis but now they recommend everybody gets a scan. So everybody's paying a uh, $500 a year for this thing now instead of one person paying, right. you know, you know $1,500 or something. So I, I don't know. Looking at the ways that this lines up with the Biden-Harris administration's long-term goals, just how those investments could pay off for them in the future. But I don't know that there's any guarantee on that. Because no, depending there's on not. The, because in, as we've seen in America, um, one administration's um, – uh, goals and initiatives are political football. Right. Um, you know, going back to, I mean, going back to Reagan coming in and tearing off the solar panels on the top of the White House that Jimmy Carter put up there in 1980. And I'm not trying to be political, but there's a lot of independent analysts think that we would be about 20, 25 years ahead in solar power and alternative energy research had that not happened with the Reagan administration. Nothing against Ronald Reagan for that, but sometimes these things are political footballs. And instead of us thinking about what's best for the people. So well, I don't know if there's any guarantee that if a new administration comes in later this year that they won't decide to scrap all this stuff or write their own version of it. And who knows? I do think that there is a window of time right now for some of these educational initiatives to get off the ground for yes. some grants and things like that. And I do think that those could have real benefits. And I think it's harder to, if those are granted before the election cycle comes out, then actually some of those things, after that's already out there, some of those things can be really beneficial, especially this uh, um, K-12 to and undergraduate education stuff on AI. The thing that really bugs me about this is I haven't seen anywhere where there's any money for retraining. The vast majority of Americans 
who are going to have to deal with AI in the coming five years are not in high school today in the workforce. They're out of high school or they're in college or coming out. And I just find it really kind of um, mind boggling that there's no, it doesn't seem to be any money in there for people out in the workforce right now who are going to be affected and may need to be retrained. I'm not, I'm not really surprised with that. There are, there are current avenues to get monies into educational programs that already exist. And those programs exist for K through 12 and undergraduate. So there are already those money funnels that are happening. Um, I think retraining adults and current professionals, um, that's going to have a whole other kind of system that doesn't exist yet, at least on a large scale. Otherwise, it's up to the individuals to go back to that undergraduate level or go back for certification training, et cetera. So, David, I've got some conversations we need to have. (laughs) I guess so. Kai, I'd like to hear what you think about the educational initiatives in particular. The Educate AI initiative particularly resonates with me as it embodies the transformative power of education in the age of AI. By funding AI learning from the ground up, we're not just building a future workforce, we're cultivating a society fluent in the language of technology. In a world where AI is becoming as fundamental as reading and writing, Educate AI could be the cornerstone of lifelong learning and a critical step towards an inclusive tech future. That's an angle I hadn't thought about. Hmm. I hadn't thought about the integration, you know, we're talking about integration about this, integrating this in with um, companies and in everything they do in their workforces. But I hadn't thought about the fact that this is like learning basic arithmetic or numbers or letters, like teaching these kids at a very early age, kind of the fundamental building blocks they're going to need to know to live in a world inhabited with artificial intelligent machines. This is something I think I need to have a conversation with my niece about. My niece is um, not yet 13. Uh, as she likes to tell me, she's about to be 13. It's still like 45 days, kid. Come, so come on, wait a, <laughs> wait a minute. Um, Slow down. <laughs> but, but you know, it's like it's funny. It's like when you're 12, it's like, no, I'm 12 and a half. And you're like, eh, okay. But uh, I was thinking about, like, how do we get them involved right now? Because they're the people who need to to learn a lot of these things. And And I do think, I do think it's important. It'll be interesting to see how these things spin out. I think, like how do we get the stuff? And I, but I think her her generation is going to be the some of the first to step up and kind of take the reins, you know. I mean, yeah, twenty thirty, she will be yeah. entering college, and they're going to be, you know, it's it's going to be wow. I think it's time to switch our our articles to the Googles right now. Yep. So let's go ahead and do that. So um, I'll go ahead and take this one. So. Um, Hugging Face, which is the repository where uh, most of the different weights and models for different AI uh, things. So if anybody on this and listening to this pod uses LLMs or deploying their own, you're familiar with Hugging Face. You really are. It's a company that I think just got another $450 million in investment, Mm -hmm. um, like a Series D round, et cetera. It's kind of funny, like four rounds of funding. But they've announced a major partnership uh, with Google. And uh, basically what it's going to do, it's going to give developers access to uh, Google's cloud computing resources at no cost, from what I understand. Yeah. It's going to let you deploy them in, and I haven't gotten to play with this yet. So I'm really interested in seeing how this rolls out because I don't think anybody's gotten to mess with it quite yet. This is really hot off the presses, et cetera. But um, it could give um, a real ability to democratize AI development by giving you access to Google's um, tensor units and, and their other GPUs 
um, and including the cutting edge like NVIDIA H100s. So I'm just, I thought this was kind of an interesting, interesting article. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. It just goes to show that I, I don't know. I mean, like I said, they, these people are doing all these other people from Meta's announcement, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago that they're going to be investing in stuff for open eight. I, I, I'm not sure what to make of this yet. Virginia, what do you think? I think that giving, uh, developers access to those cloud computing resources um i think it's pretty cool um it does land us back in the area where we're um, platform dependent however uh if this these are the steps um that help get ai to mainstream where people are able to sit down and spin up a software version of what they need rather than having to rely on learning it, learning the code, learning, uh, you know, how to put the hardware together and, and going that difficult route, the easier you can get access to it, the quicker it's going to be adopted. I just want to jump in with this thought. Google throwing open the doors to its supercomputer cloud resources and hugging face is the golden ticket. We're talking about a democratization of AI that's akin to the printing press revolution. Suddenly, everyone's got a voice, or in this case, everyone's got AI. What does that world look like, though, David? Wait, wait, wait. You're missing the fact that Kai just jumped in. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, she's part of the team. Okay. All right. What does what world look like? I'm sorry. I just completely got derailed. <laughs> uh, no. What does what world look like? I mean, I just sit down and spin up an AI, and I'm like, hey, go do this thing for me. And, I, you know. The, the, see, I, that's my thing. I think you need a human in the loop. I think you got to have a human in the loop. Human in the loop. I've heard people say this before. Yeah. I'm going to steal it. I don't know who said that. Human in the loop. I don't know that I want an AI doing things on its own because when they go great, they go really great. When they go badly, your Tesla runs into the back of a semi truck, you know, and I, I, I don't, I understand that we're trusting them in very particular cases, right? But uh, I'm not sure yet, I, and, and as much of a technologist as I am, I, I have real concerns about somebody just spinning up an AI and doing it. I think you need to do guardrails. You're going to have to have training on this. Um, I mean, we're assuming that they're going to put that in there. No, I, I wouldn't trust them to do it. <laughs> um, you know, and then people are going to hijack things. I, I think that, um, I don't know, anything that's used for good, it can be used for bad. It's a very, uh, you know, the what is the Spider-Man quote with great rust? great power comes great responsibility we're talking about amazing power in the palm of a lot of people's hands i think it's really cool because it's going to democratize stuff for developers remember this is not democratizing stuff for the rank and file person on the street you got to have a, a fair amount of chops to go do this you know you've at least got to be a tinkerer to kind of oh, definitely this stuff, right this i mean yeah you're going to need an but, interface um, for it to I, become i i'm mixed more. anytime google offers something for free I always mixed on, okay, so what are they doing with the data? Speaking of. Well, let me grab this from you. Okay. okay. All right. Here we come. So an interesting thing happened to me um, actually this morning. Uh, one of my coworkers emailed over a Word doc, and I got the email, and I saw the doc, and I was reading through it, and I was like, oh, wait, I need to make a little change in here. So I just clicked um, up at the top the button that said open in Google Docs, and I opened in Google Docs, and then I went ahead and I made my suggested changes, and I saved it. And then I, uh, I sent over a message in Slack and said, hey, I've got that thing you asked for. Uh, <laughs> it's in the Google Doc with the changes. And she said, I sent you a Word Doc. And I was like, 
no, you didn't. You sent me a Google Doc because I made the changes in Google Doc. Look, I sent her a screenshot just to prove how right I was. Uh, so jokes on me. She actually did send a Word document, and now Gmail is opening our docs in Gmail, so or in Google Docs. So then I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then I get to pin this to our topic, which is uh, the Google update revealing that their AI is going to start reading all of your private messages. So David, when you said anytime Google gives you a product for free, you wonder what the cost is. Your free level of Gmail that we've all had for the past 20-something years. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's less than that. Well, now Google's AI is going to read through it. And no, it's going to read through the private messages on your smartphone. This is worse. People know that Google's been reading your mail for years, yeah, right? I was People to know that. that. Um, they do targeted ads, and I know it's aggregated with everything else, but you know, you can see ads in your free Gmail, you know, from other well, things. Well, they need to train their machine, and you're the product. I I think I'm very mixed on this. I understand that anytime we have a new technological advance, like it's like privacy is like it's like let's put the privacy baby on the fire again, you know, just just Keep that fire going. Well, the big thing here that Google's trying to learn is context. Um, they're trying to make the machine more human. And the only way to do that is through human conversations. So. You know, it's funny. Jean LeCun, um, who's the head of AI research for Facebook, he's kind of the um, – we're still a long way for um, AGI. He doesn't think that large language models on their own will be that. Um, and here you see Google getting other contextual data pieces, right? This is more than just mining the data for those particular things. This is about mining the stuff in your in your messages to other people. It's um, context, inflection, emotion, I, I interests, I, tone, this relationship not, this dynamics. This does not make me feel great. I this know all these things, great. but mm -hmm. see, this is what I think. Listeners and, and business owners have to understand is we operate with a set of language and that language includes all of these tone, uh, facial expression, context, unspoken context, you know, presence. Well, for, for business owners right now, if you're using Google powered Android devices for your business phones, if you're using those and you give this to your people, Google's going to be reading all that. And I think uh, you're going to have to opt out. So when we talk about like, and I'll, I'll talk about this. Can in, you in opt the out? Next. I, there's got to be an opt out function. I don't know. Does None, there? Nobody. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, Usually you have to pay for an opt out function. I promise you there will be an opt out. It, at least there will be pushback once this goes live. Because I don't know when this goes live. I think it's going to go live in a month or so or something like that. I don't think it's, they've announced it's going to happen. Um, I'm not sure, but I'm sure there's a way to opt out. Well, maybe I'm not sure. Uh, there should be. Did, Surely there's a way to opt out. And didn't, wasn't it, was it a few weeks or months ago that we saw that Google re-secured their contract with Android to be the primary browser? Oh, you're talking about not with Android, but with Samsung. Yes, with Samsung. Yeah, that there was an open question there last year for a brief period of time. It was like Samsung was, um, and remember, all that stuff's come out in those court cases, like the billions of dollars that they're paying. I think it's twenty billion, twenty billion or something. It's it's a huge number. It's a lot bigger than you may thought it's it was like going to be. That's like a tenner for Google. David. Maybe it's a, maybe it, maybe it's ten billion. I don't know. We can go. We'll put that and correct that in the show notes. It's but, like fifty bucks. But yeah, I do think for business owners, you got to think about like who thought you were going to have to secure your messages you're using in your organization if you're using Android devices. Hmm. Um, we as a company. 
use Google um, Google Workspaces. We're also a Google partner, full disclosure. We're not just a Google partner. We're also a Google reseller. So we actually, in addition to Microsoft Office 365, we offer the Google suite of products. So I just want to make sure that's clear and I'm not violating any federal you know, trade commission guidelines. But um, that being said, um, you know, we do have some Android phones. We have some, um, we have iOS phones. Uh, we have, and we have Android phones. And I think we're going to have to take a look at that because I certainly don't want Google reading those things and mining that because we have confidentiality contracts yeah, with that, our clients. Okay. So, all right. Um, listeners, if you're a business owner out there, check your confidentiality agreements and check your terms of service that your vendors are in line with your confidentiality agreements to your clients. It, this actually could have a chilling effect. We, we've we seen clients now, and any of you business owners well know, a lot of clients now are communicating with you via text. And so that's a, that's a crazy thing. So bringing us to the, uh, the last article from this week, and it's been a busy week, is um, the leaderboards tracked by um, lmsys.org which is the stands for the Large Model Systems Organization. And um, we ran into them last year early on before Llama was released when they released Vacuna. And uh, it's uh, an organization that's partly, I think it's Stanford help runs it, et cetera. And basically they had to deal with this thing called Chatbot Arena. And what their Chatbot Arena is, if you want to check it out, it's pretty cool. You can go to lmsys.org. And you can go to their chatbot arena, and it will let you compare two models um, against each other without you knowing. You can basically give it two, a prompt, and it will you pick on um, you pick a, a couple of different models, and it'll give you a response to this prompt, and you can rate whichever one does better. Now, this is of all the things out there in the market segment. This is considered kind of the gold standard. It's one of maybe two platforms out there in the market where people trust it for ranking which. Um, large language models are better than others. Now, the headlines say Google's Gemini Pro beats GPT-4. That's not exactly true because GPT-4 Turbo, which is the model that um, OpenAI released in, I want to say, October, early November yeah, last year. late last, late yeah. last year. So they actually are still number one on the ranking. But number two, coming in number two is Bard, which is powered by Gemini Pro. And we still haven't seen Gemini Ultra yet, so we don't know what that'll look like. But that's a big deal because it beat two previous versions of GPT-4. Now, do remember GPT-4 came out in March of last year, so this is not like a, a recent technology. Well, and, and Meta still has Llama 3 to come out? Yeah, Llama 3 will be released sometime this year, and I, I'm... I, I don't, I'm not, look, I never was counting Google out in this race, but I'm telling people right now that um, I think Llama, I think, I think Meta is going to be a real contender later this year. I think they're absolutely going to be a real contender, contender later this year. It really is. And by the way, this is not like these, these bots aren't beating each other by like 30%. These are like 5% incremental things, but that's a big deal. Um, and then moving up the, the leaderboard there, um, that's a big improvement. But if you want to go check this out yourself, you can go to the lmsys.org and click on Chatbot Arena, and you can go check it out yourself. Just it's check a, cool. pick up a couple of models, give it a prompt, and see what you think about it, and vote on the one you like. But it's it's pretty cool, and this is a big deal. This is a uh, is a uh, major move forward for Google, 
And I guess I'd like to have... Well, they're going to roll it out in all of their properties. So, like, their public, their user base is going to get to experience this pretty quickly. Um, uh, They're going to have it integrated right into Chrome. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's one of the announcements is that they said they're going to start... They're integrating the generative AI into Google Chrome again... Do you remember, David, uh, when we first started the company in 2007, do you remember the, what was it, the browser nav bars up at the top that people used to install to customize their browser experience? Mm -hmm. This is like Google forcing you. They're going to like sneak this little thing in there and people are going to be using an AI without even knowing it. They'll be like, oh, I just thought it was part of the browser. It's going to be insane. Yeah. (laughs) See, that's the weird thing about it. I I think I do have massive concerns about this from a privacy standpoint. When you look at Chrome, Chrome powers, even even Microsoft Edge, I believe, is a Chromium powered browser. So you're looking at Chrome. It is, I think. (laughs) Microsoft Edge and Opera are all Chromium powered browsers. The only one that's kind of um, open source and not giving the data away to a company to who knows what they're doing with it is, is Firefox. And I'm a, I'm still big on Firefox. I think it's an important organization to have out there because it's the only, really the only other browser that's really on the marketplace. Um, Man, that really sucks though when you have software that won't run on anything but Chrome. Yeah, that's another, that's another problem. I, I do think there's some antitrust um, questions that are going to come up with AI, et cetera. Uh, we do know that the attorney generals are looking into the cloud providers' relationships with the artificial intelligence platforms, but we can talk about that another day. Mm. You want to give Kai the final word on this article yeah. this week? Yeah, take it away, Kai. Reflecting on the article about Google's Bard surpassing GPT-4, it's clear that we're witnessing a significant moment in AI development. For business owners, this signals a need to stay ahead of the curve. Here are some action items to consider. Encourage your team to learn about AI, keep an eye on AI trends and updates. Knowing when Meta's Llama 3 drops or what Google's next move is can give you a competitive edge. Continue to consider the ethical implications of AI integration. It's not just good practice. It's good business. I I think the big takeaway this week is um, there need to be laws protecting um, your rights and likenesses, etc. across the Internet. And business owners need to help be part of that messaging and dialogue. And you need to think about how your do you have a plan for how your people are using AI and do you know how your data is being used? I think those are your takeaways from this episode of the pod. My takeaways, um, please, please, please read your terms of service. These are early days and we are encouraging you to go out and play with software and systems. Please read the terms of service Make sure that they align with your confidentiality agreements and take a good look at your tech stack and make sure that the pieces that you have in place for your business align with what you how you want your business to run. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that's changing, folks. You got to stay on top of it. All right, that's all for this week. Be sure you turn in next week for more AI coverage and insight. Thank you again for listening. I've been David Maples. And I've been Virginia Hewling. And Kai, thank you as always for joining us from your Silicon Lair. The show wouldn't be the same without you.
Yes, your observations, your manipulations, and your witty remarks. We'll see y'all next week. Bye.